This morning, I want to ask you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be starting with chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. And this morning, we're going to be beginning a new series. We're going to be walking our way through the book of 1 Peter. And there are all different uh, styles and types of preaching. And over the, the last number of years here, we have kind of just devoted ourselves to a type of preaching that would probably be called topical preaching, where we've looked at different subjects, different topics, different themes, and we've looked at the Word of God in maybe a, a broad kind of way, as in, detail as, in, in, in as much detail as we could, but in a broad kind of way, and we've talked about different topics. We talked about things like uh, the existence of God and how do we know that God exists. And we've talked about uh, things like the problem of evil and why is there so much um, uh, evil in the world and why do bad things happen to good people. We've talked about the ways that we live in community together. We've talked about ways to love one another well as we've talked about um, uh, listening and not making assumptions about people, and all those different kinds of topics that we've covered over the last few years. Um, this next season, what we're going to be doing is a, a different type of preaching, and it is known as expository preaching. And I ha haven't done this in a while, and to be honest with you, I'm really looking forward to it because it's one of my favorite things to do in the world. Like, I just, I just love studying God's Word in this way. And what we're going to be doing is walking verse by verse through a book of the Bible, and this one is going to be First Peter. And as we do this, one of the things that um, is really neat is we get to study God's Word in a way that is very in-depth. And as we look at a book as a whole, we get to make all kinds of connections that we would not make if we were just look at single verses here and there and talk about the ideas around them. As we look at the Bible as literature and how people wrote, it's very beautiful and it's very complex and it's very meaningful when we dive deeply into God's Word. And so for this next season, we're going to just walk verse by verse through this book and open our ears to what the Lord wants to speak to us. One of the coolest things that I've seen God do as we do this um, is He always puts us where we need to be, when we need to be there in His Word. I taught through a number of years ago, I taught through the book of Matthew. We went for three years through the book of Matthew. And every Sunday, like it, just, it just felt like every Sunday, God, this is what we need to hear today. And so God, uh, working through the Holy Spirit, leading us in study, speaks what we need to hear. And I'm very excited about walking through this book with you. As we think about this book, just the overall theme of this book is living in the world as followers of Jesus. We, we look at the world, and it's just a crazy place. There's trouble, and there's hardship. We suffer at times. And how are we to live as committed followers of Jesus? We begin to look at 1 Peter this morning, and we understand that when we read the Bible, that there are all different types of literature in the Bible. There are different types of writing, all right? 
some writing is stories. It tells us what happens. Like we go back to the Genesis account. We see stories of God creating. We see stories of God working with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we read those stories and we learn about how God would work in our lives as well. Same thing with the Gospels, stories about Jesus. There are also books of poetry like, like the Psalms or, or Proverbs where uh, people are writing just beautiful lines about who God is and it works together in, in a way that, that leads us to, to worship the Lord and to trust Him. This morning we are reading a letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of people. Now, as we think about this letter, all the letters in the New Testament, ancient letters, they kind of follow a certain form. There's a, there's a greeting, there's an introduction, say, this is who I am, and this is, uh, these are the people that I'm writing to, and this is kind of my idea of what I want to say. There's, they usually begin with a blessing or a prayer or a word of praise in some way. Then there's the main content of the letter, the main body where the person is either teaching an idea or in, instructing about the truths of God and how that works out in people's lives. And then finally, there's a conclusion. So what we're going to focus on today is just the greeting of this letter, the first two verses. And I would ask that you read it with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance." So these two verses are the greeting. And whenever I'm reading chunks of Scripture, a lot of times I come to a letter like this and I'll see that greeting and I'll think, okay, it's from Paul to these people. Let's go on and get into the good stuff, right? And I have a tendency to want to just skim through that, that little greeting part because it seems like a formality in some ways. But the reality is here, as we begin to look at this, this greeting is not just a formality, there are really deep, important truths for us to grasp here, and we want to make sure that we take time to unpack what is being said as he begins this letter. So first of all, we have a statement about the author. Who is writing? Well, it's Peter, and he's a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we're familiar with the stories about Peter in the Gospels, right? How Peter was a fisherman and Jesus came to him and said, hey, come and follow me. And he just dropped his nets and he goes and follows Jesus. And he, he spends three years just following Jesus around, doing what Jesus does. And Jesus sends out the disciples to preach and to announce the kingdom is here and to heal the sick and to raise the dead and cast out demons and all these things. And Peter's the one who, uh, when Jesus was walking to the disciples on water, uh, Peter says, hey, if it's you, Lord, um, tell me to come out to you. And Peter, like, walks on water. Yeah, he, he, he gets scared by the waves, but man, this man walked on water, okay? He walked on water with Jesus. He was the one who was able to identify that Jesus was the Messiah. When everyone else was wondering, who is Jesus? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. He was so enthusiastic that he was willing, he said, to die. Even if everyone else falls away, Jesus, I'll never fall away. And 
Jesus looks at him and says, well, Peter, you're going to fall away too. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is the one who took out his sword and he was ready to fight and he cut off the uh, servant's ear. Jesus had to heal it and put it back on and say, no, it's not time for that. But then just a few hours later, Peter is watching Jesus on trial and people begin to accuse him and say, hey, weren't you one of those disciples? Weren't you with that guy? And Peter says, no. And three times he denies Christ. And then after the resurrection... We have Peter and Jesus on the beach, and Peter's excited that, that Jesus is there, and Jesus begins to ask him questions about, Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you truly love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asks him that question three times, mirroring the fact that Peter denied Christ three times. And in this moment, Jesus is restoring Peter and encouraging him to look after the church. The instructions that Jesus gives Peter is to feed his flock, to feed his sheep. And Peter becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas as, they, as the gospel is spread. So as Peter writes, he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this is important because in, the, in this he is claiming that he has authority from Jesus to say the things that he is going to say. These aren't Peter's ideas. These aren't something that he just sat around and thought about for a while and was like, you know, it'd be good if I shared, shared this with somebody. Maybe it'll mean something. Like, No, this is a, a word from Jesus, basically. He's been sent by Jesus. He's an apostle to the church. And as we look at the history of this, he's probably writing from the city of Rome, and shortly after 60 A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood, all right? So he's been traveling around sharing the gospel. And then we turn to the recipients of the letter. And if we look here, it says that this letter was written to God's elect exiles scattered through, the province, through these different provinces. And as we look at a map and where these provinces were in the ancient world, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all of them were in what is now modern-day Turkey, all right? So they're over here. So Peter is writing from Italy in Rome, right? He's in Rome. Then we have Greece kind of in the middle. That's these islands down here, the island of Crete. You may have heard that referenced in the Bible. Then we have uh, what we call Asia Minor, and that is the na modern-day nation of Turkey, and that's where all these churches are. They're scattered throughout this region, all right? So we have believers living in this region of the world. And the question that may be helpful to ask as we begin to study this book, who are these people? What is their background? What is their history? Where are they from? And one of the questions we might ask is, are they Jews or are they Gentiles? Sometimes we see letters in the New Testament focusing on Jewish Christians. Sometimes we see them focusing on Gentile Christians. And we're asking this morning, are these people Jews or Gentiles? When we begin to look at the terms that Peter uses, we can recognize that these terms commonly refer to Jews. Though terms like elect and chosen and exiles and scattered. Those are words that usually describe the Jewish nation, 
the Jewish nation, they were the chosen people of God. They were, they were the, the, the special possession of God that God established them in order to bring the Messiah who would save the world. The Jews understood themselves as chosen by God. The Jews often understood themselves as exiles because at times when they disobeyed God, they were conquered. God took away his protection. He took away um, his provision, and he allowed other nations to come in and conquer them and carry them off into other lands. And so the Jews understood themselves as exiles. And then this word scattered is a technical term. It means of the diaspora or of the dispersion, right? The, the Jews were dispersed throughout the land because they were exiles. So, so at face value here, um, maybe he's talking to Jew, Jewish people in these churches. But then I think as we look at what is happening in the larger context of the book and you see how Peter describes these people, I don't think he's talking about the Jews. I think he's talking to Gentiles. Just look at this quotation from chapter 4, verse 3. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Like all those things would have, would have been um, completely off limits for the Jews. Like no God-honoring Jew would live in such a way. And so there's no way that these terms, this description, can be attributed to, to Jews. So here's a key then. What's happening here? Well, Peter is taking common Jewish terms and he is applying them to Gentile believers. All right, the terms like elect and exiles and scattered. He's taking Jewish terms and he's saying, this is how I'm describing you Gentile believers. Now, why would he do that? I think it's because he is trying to define their identity for them as the people of God. The Jews understood themselves as the people of God, and that's how they would have presented themselves. And now Peter is looking at this new group of people who are coming into the faith, who are coming to know the true and living God, and he's saying, I want you to identify as the people of God. And this happens throughout this letter. We'll see it over and over and over again as he uses these terms to redefine. You are no longer living as members of that society in the world and its systems. That's no longer part of your life. You are now part of God's family. You are now part of God's kingdom. And so the main course of our study today is going to be asking the question, who are we as God's people? Because we are not Jews. We are Gentiles who were grafted into God's family tree. And it's important to us as we follow Jesus to have a foundation knowing that we are members of God's family and we need to know who we are and how we are supposed to identify. What is our identity as the people of God. It forms the basis of our life with God. If we want to know how we are to live rightly in this world as God's people, we have to know who God sees us as. How does God see us? What does He say about us? So with that in mind, we're going to look at these terms. And see what they might mean for us. 
First of all, he calls them exiles. Now, the word exile has a connotation. It basically means you have been taken from your land or you've been driven out in some way and you're living somewhere else. Uh, That might not be the best rendering of of this word. A little better understanding would be something simply um, temporary, temporary resident. You're just living in a place for a short time. It's not your home. You're just staying for a while in a foreign place. And I don't know if you can identify with this. Do you ever travel to a place that's not your home and you realize we're not in Kansas anymore? Is that a... Hey, that works. All right. <laughs> um, like this... We're, hey, you know, I'm not from around here. And you see this as you move across different regions of the United States. If you travel different, a different city or a different state, like people just do things a different way. If you travel abroad to a different nation, you really see it, right? Like I remember one time we went to Haiti and... Uh, they were very excited they were going to take us out to a restaurant. We had been there just like working hard all week. We we're going to celebrate by going to a Haitian restaurant. And uh, they're going to serve us goat. That is the ideal meal there. And I'm like, I've never eaten a goat. Like, we don't eat goats from where I live. Anybody eat goats? You guys eat goats? You guys eat goats? All right, cool. All right, well, I didn't eat goats. I didn't grow up eating goats. <laughs> um, so that, that was a new, exp- a new experience for me. Like, hey, I'm not from around here. Let's just try some goats. I remember one time Hannah and I uh, had the opportunity to travel uh, to Europe, and we were going through these different cities in Italy. We got to go to Rome, we got to go to Florence, we got to go to Venice, and one of the culture shock things for me was like, there were public restrooms, but you had to pay to use them, and I'm not, not used to that. You know, I'm used to like driving down the road, there's a restroom, pull in, go in and use the restroom. But over there, there's an attendant there, and they're expecting tips and to be paid to use restrooms. Like, man. They do things differently here. Well, that's the idea here, is that as part of God's people, we are in a place where all the people around us are going to do things differently than what God is calling us to do. And we need to recognize that this world and its systems and its values, and the things that it cares about, that, excuse me, the things that it cares about, those things are not the models for our life. The model for our life is Jesus Christ and how he lives out the values of the kingdom of God. So I need to stop looking around at everybody else and going, why can't my life be like that? Why can't I be like that person? Why can't I have what they have? Why can't I do what they do? Like, stop measuring myself against the systems and values of this world. That's not our priority. That's not where we need to have our hearts set. The Scripture says we need to have our hearts set on the things above and not on earthly things. Now, that's not to say that earthly things don't matter. God has put us here in a specific time and a specific place And he has called us to be good stewards of our time and our resources here. What we do matters, but we need to do the things that we do in light of eternity. We need to do the things that we do in light of the kingdom of God and not the values of the people around us. So don't measure yourself against those things. Understand that you are only a temporary resident. You're here for a while. And it matters what you do, and it matters uh, what's going on around you, 
but we are to live and steward those things in light of the plans that God has for us in eternity. The second thing that we see here is that he calls them elect. He calls them exiles, and they are called elect or chosen exiles. Now, in most of the translations that we read, um, this word is repeated. Uh, Elect residents living in all these areas who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. And so we have this repetition of elect and chosen. There's only one word there, and that word is, can be translated elect or can be translated chosen. And then the uh, phrases that come after it are kind of detached, and that's why our translation repeats the idea, right? We want to know how these ideas are all connected according to the foreknowledge of God by the, or through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled. And they're connected to this word or this description of elect. Now, when we hear the word elect, there are all kinds of things that can rise up in us because if you're familiar with any of the theological debates around this, this word has a lot of baggage, all right? Uh, sometimes people teach that, that God arbitrarily chooses there are certain people that he's going to save and some people that he's not going to save. And it's not based on anything you do. It's not based on your faith. It's not based on your trust in Jesus. It's just from the beginning or before the beginning, God says, I'm going to save some people and I'm not going to save some people. And um, you don't really have a say in the matter. That is, that's kind of uh, one system of thought around this. I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. I don't think that's the totality of Scripture. So we're going to go on a, a little just sidetrack for a moment and just discuss this briefly. And we won't be able to get into all the details, but I want to just lay out a theology of this so that we understand kind of the language that's going on here, right? So when it comes to this idea of election, election means that God sovereignly chooses to save those who trust in Him. Now, that's a simple definition. We'd have to, like, unpack how we get there, all right? I can't just pronounce a definition for this word. Like, I have to look at the theology behind it, all right? And we're going to do a little bit of that today. But it's important at the start that we understand that God doesn't have to save anybody, all right? God could have created humanity. Humanity could have rebelled against Him and rejected His goodness and fallen into sin and death and destruction. And God could simply say, I'm going to judge you. He would be perfectly just and good to judge humanity because we're all guilty. We've all done evil. We've all done wrong. We've all sinned. And God could simply let it be and say, you'll receive your due reward for that. The wages of sin is death. But God doesn't do that. God chooses to save people. God chooses to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that whoever puts their trust in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. One of the passages that talks about this uh, in depth is Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Notice I grouped all of those together because it's important that we read all of those together. Uh, very often, we get stuck reading a verse or two at the time because, you know, they're so deep, and I can just like spend three hours studying these verses here, right? And, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we miss the totality of what an, a biblical author is saying because we're not reading the whole thing, all right? Uh, so many times people will get stuck on the 
ninth chapter of Romans and not get to chapter 10 or 11. But I believe all these chapters have to be looked at uh, together in context to get the flow of the argument that Paul is making in this book. All right? So just, just briefly, I, I would love to go there and spend the next two days on it, but just briefly, all right? In Romans chapter 9, Paul is saying that God determines whom he will save. It is God's sovereign choice to decide the people that he wants to save. And what he does there, and he talks about the, the, the Jews, and he was like, hey, you're not going to be saved because you were born a Jew. You're not going to be saved because you were a descendant of Abraham. You're not going to be saved just because you had the law and God gave to you the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Like, those are not reasons you're going to be saved. God gets to decide whom he's going to save. Now, when you get to, if you stop there, that sounds like a hard message. It's like, well, God's just arbitrarily picking? No, 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 you've got to read on to chapters 10 and 11. And in chapter 10, he answers the question, well, who is it that God is going to save? And, and the gist of it is everyone who believes. In Romans 10, 11 through 13, um, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on describing how uh, the Jews ultimately rejected Jesus. And they are rejected because of their unbelief. And the Gentiles are coming in to relationship with God, and they're being grafted in uh, to God's family tree because they have put their trust in him. But oh, by the way, God's not going to just abandon the Jews. Ultimately, there will be a witness to them, and many of them will turn and follow Jesus. And this is the flow of the chapters of 9, 10, and 11. And this idea is that that God does choose to save people. And he chooses to save them primarily in Christ. And so, in other words, if you've put your faith in Christ, then you are part of that group who is saved. This is not arbitrary, unconditional election based on, you know, however God feels in the moment. But rather, as we read here in 1 Peter, believers are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This, this goes even deeper, and we'll talk just a step deeper, but there's also a debate about this word foreknowledge, and what does foreknowledge of God mean? And those who kind of advocate for unconditional election, meaning God just chooses to save some people, not based on their faith, not based on anything they do, God just picks them, and ultimately you have no free will, everything is determined by God, they'll say something like, Foreknowledge means not just knowing something in advance, but rather being loved in advance or being chosen in advance. On the other side of the debate, people say foreknowledge means you just know beforehand. You just know something in advance. And as you read through all the biblical passages where these words are used, and as you look at all the early Greek literature... Like, the best that I can come up with, and I'm not going to go through every one of these. They're up here, so I'll have them online so you can read them for yourself. I've got detailed notes on all this if, if you want it. I, I'll, I'm ready to print it out and hand it to you if you want to do the study. But to the best of my knowledge, as, as I read the, the, these passages, both in the Bible and the people who use this word outside of the Bible, like early church fathers and just other people who wrote using this term, it just means to know something in advance. It doesn't mean that you were pre-chosen, and therefore you were chosen. 
and therefore you have no say in the matter. God either saves you or doesn't save you. That's, that's not what's being communicated here. What's being communicated is that God knows something. Actually, God knows everything. God knows all things. He knows everything in the future. He knows what would happen if circumstances would have been different. We don't usually use, word, we don't usually use language in that way. That's called the subjunctive mood. But uh, Ernestine will teach you about that later because she knows all about that. Um, but, but God knows what would happen if circumstances would be different. And basically, God looked and he said, if I created such person, that person would believe in me. And so God chooses to save those who would believe in him. God establishes a method whereby justice can be done. Jesus takes the uh, penalty of sin, and those who uh, believe in him and trust in him are then saved. So God planned in advance to save everyone who would put their trust in him. That's what election means. We are a chosen people, and God has plans and purposes for us. And this is what I don't want you to miss, all right? Because we could spend a lot more time on the theology, and the theology is very important. Uh, I love to study it. It's important that we build our life on the truth of God's Word, not just what we want it to say, but what it actually says. The theology is very important, but sometimes we can let that get in the way of what Peter is actually trying to communicate in this verse. We needed to take that little detour to to try to clear some things up, but we need to get the idea, the heart of what Peter is communicating to these believers. You are God's chosen people. God has plans and purposes for you. That's what we need to take home from this today. You were exiles, you were temporary residents, and you were God's chosen. He's got something that he wants to do in your life. Well, how does he bring this about? These these other phrases help to explain what's going on here. He says, you were chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit makes us holy. This word sanctifying has to do with holiness. And all holiness is is being consecrated or dedicated or set apart unto God. The Spirit takes up residence in us and He sets us apart for God. So when we put our trust in Jesus, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit enables us to serve God in holiness. There's this really interesting parallel here. We read this next phrase that you were set apart for holiness to be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Would you turn with me to the book of Exodus? Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. Here we have the people of Israel coming up out of Egypt, and God has delivered them from slavery, and he's setting apart a people for himself. And watch what he says here in Exodus 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and what I carried 
or how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you were to speak to the Israelites. So God is establishing a covenant of relationship with the people of Israel. And he tells them, I brought you up out of Egypt. I'm making you my, my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. By the way, in just a, a, a few chapters, we're going to hear that repeated again. That, that line is going to be repeated in Peter. All right? So, so what happens then is the people that go, they go out to the mountain, and God shows up in a cloud, and there's thunderings and flashes of lightning and, 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 and just all kinds of evidence that, that God is there in their midst. And the people are worshiping, and they're offering fellowship offerings to God. And if you jump over to chapter 24, so in the midst we have a, a, an explanation of how the people are supposed to live, and we have the Ten Commandments and um, how they're supposed to worship God and all kinds of stuff there. And in verse 7 of 24, we read this. I'm talking about Moses. He took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. And Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So there are two words there and those two verses that mirror what's happening in 1 Peter. What are they? Obedience, we will obey. And then there's sprinkling with blood, right? That's what we just read about in 1 Peter 1 and 2. Do you see how he's calling back to what's happened as God established a people for himself? Now he's looking at these Gentile believers. We're going back to Peter now. He's looking at these Gentile believers and he's saying to them, God has called you out. God has called you out of sin. He has called you out of darkness. And you're a chosen people. You're set apart. Not by law, but by spirit. And you are set apart for a particular purpose. And that purpose is for obedience and for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are moving in a direction. This this election, this being chosen by God, this being sanctified, it has a, has a purpose. We are called to put our faith in Jesus and follow him faithfully day by day by day. And we have been sprinkled with his blood. And this speaks to the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, of how he paid the price for our sins. And it's through Jesus' blood that we are able to enter into a relationship with God the Father. You see the parallels here? He's looking at this group of believers who don't have all this background of the, new, of the Old Testament and all that, that history and, uh, the, of the people of God following, and he's saying, yeah, but God is looking at you and he's bringing, into, bringing you into this group. He's bringing you into his family through the blood of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And then he looks at them in the end of this greeting and he, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So we are temporary residents. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then he looks at them and he says, you are a people of grace and peace. 
When we think about these terms, and we're familiar with these terms, we've spent a lot of time studying these terms over the last few months, right? Grace is, is favor. It's unearned, right? God just has grace for us. He has favor on us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to experience His goodness in this life. And He wants us to experience His peace. And we talked about the meaning of this term as well-being, right? The end of hostility where everything is just calm and tranquil. We're whole in God. And He says, I want that to abound. I want that to be multiplied. I want that to increase in your life day after day after day. Not stress, not anxiety, not fear, not trouble and hardship and worry and doubt, but I want peace and grace to increase in you day by day. We think about this then as this is the foundation of who we are in God. And I know we've covered a lot of ground in just these two verses, and I I started with an introduction of the book, and then I talked about some really deep theological concepts, and then we just hit this greeting right here at the end. But as we begin to study this book, we're, we're laying the groundwork because we want to know how to live in the midst of a chaotic culture. And if we want to know how to live, we first have to start with who we are. What Peter is saying here is that we are God's people, and as God's people, we are temporary residents of this world. That this world is not our home, and we don't need to be caught up in it. Stop getting caught up in the stuff of this life, but rather think about the kingdom and the values of the kingdom of God, not the systems that we see around us. That we are God's chosen people, that we've been set apart by His Spirit for obedience unto Christ, that, that Jesus Christ has shed His blood for us and that by His blood we are cleansed and we are made new, that we have entered into a covenant relationship with God, not by law, but through the blood of Jesus, And we are reconciled to Him and indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That we live in this new reality that the old is gone and the new has come. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We live that out. And finally, that we are recipients of abundant grace and peace. Are we open to God pouring out His grace and His peace in our lives? Or does that seem like it's too far off? Like a a distant hope that can't actually be reality. Does God really want me to live in grace and peace? The answer is yes. He wants it to abound in your life. And are we open to receiving what He has for us as His children? Or we still feel like outsiders hoping to somehow claw and scratch our way in? That's not how we're to see ourselves. We're His chosen People, and He has good things. He has spiritual blessings for us if we will come in obedience to Christ. This is who we are, and it's on this basis that we begin to live it out in Jesus' name. So this is just the beginning of First Peter, and I hope that you'll join us as week by week. We won't only do two verses every week, although we maybe could. But I hope that you'll join us as we begin to work through this word and listen to the voice of God in the midst of it. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for this time that we've had to study deeply and look at your word. God, we treasure it. 
We thank you so much that you have chosen to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take hold of our identity. God, that we wouldn't let anyone else define us. Lord, not those around us, our coworkers or, or family members who have uh, expectations that you don't have for us, Lord. Not um, any other person, Lord, that would, that would speak in and say, you are this. No, Lord, we will live based on what you have called us to be. Lord, we will not follow the voice of the enemy, the one who seeks to destroy us, the one who would pronounce lies over us to say that, that you're a failure or you're a fraud or, or anything like that, Lord. We, we pray against that in the name of Jesus. And we pray that as your people, we would stand sure on your promises that we would trust what you have to say about us because we have been bought and sprinkled with the precious blood of Christ and we are your treasured possession. God, I pray that you would help us to live in light of these realities and pronounce the good news of Jesus to the world. God, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.